Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. It's all taking place on a global level. There's fear-mongering, there's, you know, the propaganda, the political corruption, there's rampant immorality like we've never seen before. And uh, words, I'll be honest, one of the things that is that has really irked me more than anything was just the meaning of words changing. Like words changing meaning, or being basically meaningless, right? We can just change the definition of things. And uh, to me, that's one of the most frightening things, because once you do that, I mean, it's, it's, it's social suicide, and there's some difficult things around the corner. But um, honestly, I think we should be encouraged when we study the book of Acts, because life during these times, as we've seen, really wasn't much different. Yeah, there's things taking place on a global level, unlike then, but even back in the, the days of the book of Acts, in many cases, it was much worse than it is today. Okay? The immorality, the political corruption, that sort of thing. And yet, this little newborn church that started in Jerusalem, right, with 3,000 people that just sprung up, um, it grew rapidly, and it took the world by storm in just 30 years. It's really remarkable to think about the condition that the world was in back then in the Roman Empire and how all the corruption, and then to think the, the, the church took the world by storm in just 30 years. You know, and, my, and so the question I want to ask today is really, uh, can God still do the same today? You look around and you see the corruption. Can God still do the same today? Is he still growing his church in an environment that's hostile to the gospel, that's hostile to the Bible, that's hostile to the church and to Christians and everything that right, we stand for? Can God still work? Can he, in an increasingly hostile world, how should we prepare to advance the gospel in a hostile culture? Because... That's something we need to think about. I mean, as Americans, we've never really experienced a whole lot of hostility or persecution. And uh, just in light of recent events, the past few years, it has us thinking about our response more. I mean, how do we, how do we answer? How do we respond to the hostility? And there is an interesting biblical principle. We might actually call it more of a proverbial um, concept a proverbial concept that Jesus shared that we don't think about much, but I think it's going to be critical a critical key to keep in mind in the years to come. And it involves a snake and a dove. And Jesus called it being shrewd and innocent. 
And so that's kind of the, our, our thoughts this morning, our guiding thought this morning as we continue to study Paul's trials in the last part of the book of Acts. Remember Jesus said that his disciples, including Paul, were going to appear before kings for his name's sake. And uh, I'll remind us that uh, Paul, at this point, has been arrested on false charges. He was arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, there he held a religious trial that basically ended in a stalemate. And when a, a plot was uh, formed to kill him, uh, and it was eventually, it was providentially uncovered through Paul's nephew, who overheard it, um, he was transferred by Claudius, the governor of Judea, to, uh, to Caesarea Maritima. This is out on the coast, and he is there. He's been there under custody for uh, two years, but he stood here first before Governor Felix, who basically learned that Paul is a, he's a good egg, right? Like we talked about last week. He's a good egg. He's a good Roman citizen. He hasn't done anything wrong. However, justice was delayed, and he used Paul as a political pawn in his agenda to please the Jews. And so even though Paul should be set free, here he is. He's just sitting in limbo. It's not like he's fully incarcerated. He has a lot of freedom sitting behind bars, to be honest with you as a Roman citizen, but he's also not totally free. So he's just kind of in this limbo state for two years. And um, today we're going to see Felix. He's been ousted as governor, and a man named Festus is going to be the new sheriff in town. And we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 24 here as we see another plot to kill Paul. Uh, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Festus then, after arriving in the province, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with Festus, requesting a concession against him, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem uh, at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Have the influential men among you go there with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, have them bring charges against him. So Felix again is replaced by Festus in about A.D. 59 by Emperor Nero, and so Paul is in custody from A.D. 57 to 59. And the entire time he appears again just to be this political pawn, uh, in a chess game that Felix is playing with the Jews, and he's using him for a political advantage. Uh, the reason for this, again, is that Felix uh, doesn't want to uh, make the Jewish leaders angry. Okay, Emperors, like Nero, they wanted nothing more than peace and order in the empire, and if a governor like Felix or Festus couldn't maintain order, they were ousted pretty quick. If there's riots or insurrections or a bunch of complaints from the Jewish leaders, they're out of office. Okay? And, and the tensions between the Jews and the Romans at this time, as we talked about last week, uh, it was at a breaking point. Remember, the Jewish wars are only uh, just seven years away at this point. Seven, eight years. And um, these tensions are just... They're just ready to snap, and it was Felix, actually, who um, 
created more tension than any other governor, historians say. Uh, more tension between Jews and Romans than any other governor. And, and so much of his, uh, his dealings with the Jews and the Romans, kind of that it relationship is what sparked the Jewish wars. And so he's on thin ice, but while Felix probably hoped that the Jews would forget about Paul over time, and so that he could release Paul, you know, it's obvious that they haven't forgot. Because when Festus takes over, he goes to Jerusalem. What's the first thing they do? They say, you need, to, you need to kill Paul, basically. You need to deal with Paul. The hatred for Paul is so strong in their hearts that they are still trying to take his life on their own. You know, they, 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 Festus, he basically, he, he very energetically, he steps into office and he's, Man, he's energetically beginning his work. Three days later, he goes up to Jerusalem. He's going to meet the high priest. He's going to meet the council. You know, kind of like today, a new president or a new governor takes office. What do they do? They go around and they start to develop relationships. And uh, they start to visit other countries and things like that. And that's basically what Festus is doing. And uh, because... The Jewish leaders were so difficult to work with, he especially wants to get off on a good foot with them. I mean, he goes up there only three days after taking office. And uh, while he's there, the council renews their charges against Paul, and they try to take advantage of, I think, this new inexperienced governor. This is a brand new governor, never held a trial type of thing. And so they ask Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem for another hearing in Jerusalem, and they don't really want a hearing, do they? It says they want to ambush Paul on the way, so they they plan they plan to kill Paul. And it's amazing just the hatred that these guys still have for him, and how they they're they're just they won't give up. Uh, you know, Paul's life has been on the line, uh, not really because uh, God's sovereign, right? But I mean, his his life has has been in danger many times in, in Acts. This, I think, I, from, from memory, I know this is at least the fourth attempt to kill Paul. Like, organized plot to kill Paul in the book of Acts. Remember one time, he had to flee Jerusalem, and then he, he got, uh, they, they, he was going to take a ship from Greece to uh, Syria, Syrian Antioch, and they were gonna they were gonna kill him on this ship and throw him overboard in the Mediterranean. And he had to walk all the way back around, and so it's just plot after plot. They just won't give up. They're trying to kill Paul. Festus, however, he doesn't know about the plot, but Luke says that by the providence of God, he he in his mild display of authority says, "If you want to persecute him, no, you have to come to Caesarea." And I think the idea is that Festus didn't know what he was doing when he did that. He didn't know about the plot. But, but in God's providence, this is what happened. So he avoids another assassination attempt, basically. And let's look, at, let's look at the hearing now in verses 6 through 12. Paul's hearing before Festus. After Festus had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, uh, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. 
But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, just like we saw in the last verse of the last chapter, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he said, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so, I mean, it's not even two weeks since Festus takes office that the religious leaders are in Caesarea again holding a trial. And they renew Tertullus's three charges from last week. Remember those three very serious charges, all worthy of the death penalty, treason and sectarianism, desecrating the temple. None of these, however, could they prove then. None can they prove now. And uh, Paul basically just has to deny, deny, deny again. And uh, Festus, it's interesting. It looks like, doesn't it look like he starts out with good intentions? I mean, he's serious. He wants to clean up Felix's mess. He's like, Felix didn't deal with this guy for two years. I'm the new governor. I'm going to do things right. And it says he takes his seat on the tribunal. Like, he's ready, right? He's ready to be judge. And then you get into it, and and he, he gets into it and immediately realizes, wow. I really underestimated how difficult it was to, to deal with Jewish politics. Okay? And in a short summary, Luke just says, Paul denies his charges again, and Felix realizes, just like Felix, that this really isn't a civil matter for a Roman judge. This is What's going on here is just a religious dispute about Jewish beliefs. It's an internal dispute within Judaism, uh, what the Jews believe. But just like Felix, rather than pursue justice and let Paul go because he's innocent. Remember, Paul said, you know very well that I'm innocent. I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong. He still, it still says right here, he wishes to do the Jews a favor by sending Paul to Jerusalem. So at first, while he appears to be this man of integrity, and he's going to handle things, right? Right, and he's actually, he appears to be unswayed by the Jewish leaders, and he's going to do things right. I mean, it's hardly two weeks into office, and he's already caving to them. Just like we've seen Pilate do, right? Just like we've seen Claudius. It's all these guys. They just keep caving to the Jewish leaders, these corrupt leaders. And he uses Paul as a pawn, a gift, basically. Uh, Paul has to respectfully admonish Festus. I can't imagine this, but he, his reply in verse 11 is basically this, uh, you're not going to make a gift out of me. You're not going to make some sort of political, diplomatic gift out of me to please them. You're not in the place to do that. He, Paul's saying, look, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. You're not going to gift me to them. You know what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. They were treating him like a gift, like a thing that they could use to please the Jews. And so, and not really a person. But he also reminded uh, Festus that 
It's under him, not the Jewish leaders, where he ought to be tried. And if he's not going to get a fair trial here, he's going to go around Festus. And he does. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And this, this uh, appeal, this right of appeal to Caesar was called a provocatio, I think is how you say it. It was an ancient Roman privilege. It dated back to 509 B.C., like over 500 years ago. Uh, this was clear back when uh, Rome was a republic and it wasn't even an empire yet. But uh, the Caesar he appealed to, get this, was the infamous Emperor Nero. Can you imagine? Nero is known for his persecutions of Christians. He's one of the worst, him and Domitian. Um, and uh, that, however, that side of Nero was still a few years down the road. He was, at this time, Nero still looked like a pretty good emperor at this point. And so he hadn't actually started all of those persecutions yet. But it won't be long. He'll actually, he's the one who actually uh, burned the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He burned his own city so that he could build something new there and then blamed it on the Christians. He, he, he was pretty harsh, but uh, to say things lightly. But I don't know about you. Okay, I find it very interesting in this passage in, the past, in these chapters, how Jesus, remember, Paul was sitting in jail, and Jesus stood by him. Jesus appeared to him, stood by him, and said, you done a good job witnessing in Jerusalem, and now you're going to be my witness in Rome. I mean, Jesus promised him that he was with him, that he was going to go to Rome. And you think that Paul kept that promise in mind, I'm going to Rome, I'm going to Rome, for two years, sitting in jail, it was hope deferred, right? <laughs> kind of like us. We're living in a hope deferred time. We're waiting for the hope of the second coming, the second advent. But uh, he's going to come through on his promise just like he did Paul. But anyway, I find it interesting. Jesus promised Paul he's going to be a witness for Jesus in Rome, and yet it took Paul's legal appeal here in this situation to make it happen. Isn't that interesting? He had to use the legal system to his advantage just like he'd done before in Philippi, chapter 16, and in chapter 22, and chapter 25. I mean, Paul is using his Roman citizenship and the Roman court system to his advantage. And uh, no doubt, Paul, in this decision, had thought about it, he'd prayed about it for the past couple of years, you know, that it would come to this, that he would have to appeal to Caesar. Uh, I'm sure, though, he felt spirit-led to make this appeal, that it was the will of God, but I still wonder if Paul was as surprised as we are uh, that his trip to Rome would happen this way, that even though Jesus promised it was going to happen, he would actually have to act shrewdly in faith to move God's plan forward and see the promise through. It's, it's, it's super interesting to me, but it does it reminds us of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents. You might say as wise or cunning as serpents and innocent as doves. And we'll talk about that a little bit more and what that means later. But how neat to think that our decisions matter. The decisions we make matter. Our decisions make a difference. By acting in faith with prayerful wisdom, we can be a part of moving God's plan forward in real time. Think about that. 
I'm going to say it again. By acting in faith with prayerful wisdom, we can be a part of moving God's plan forward in real time. Isn't that awesome? Basically, your decisions, your story, you get to connect with God's story in real time and be a part of God's eternal story. It's just it's a neat thing to think about how God honors faith-based decisions and action. Right? For his glory, we we act. Guys, I think a lot of time we we pray for God to work. You know, God, I'm in this situation. God, I'm stuck. God help me and and we wait for God, right? We're, we're Israel, we're on the edge of the Red Sea, and we're there, we're praying, Lord, I need help, and we're waiting for God to part the Red Sea. And what does God do? He sends a, he, 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 he gives you a boat instead with oars, and you actually have to do something. You know what I'm saying? He did, he providentially provided for you, but you have to, row it's, it's just interesting to think about maybe we we pray for god to provide like god you know i have this need i need you to provide and what does he do for you he's done this for me in the past he didn't drop a big sum of money in my lap you know what he did he gave me a job a better paying job or maybe he uh drops an fpu class in your lap a financial peace university class right and it just basically god says well, you, you have enough. You just need to learn how to handle it right. You know? So, <laughs> I mean, that's just what I think about when I read through these last chapters and you see the providence of God that keeps showing up, but at the same time, Paul has to act. So, anyway, advancing the gospel, we could say, requires our prayerful, intentional action on our part. But with Paul, let's, we're going to move on to the next portion here. With Paul having appealed to Caesar, it's necessary now for Festus to develop a personal, uh, detailed report for Caesar. Uh, he, Festus could use, I think, he, he's going to write up, like, why? He's going to write a report for Caesar, basically, as to why this first defendant of his in his first trial uh, had to appeal to Caesar. It had to be pretty embarrassing for him, right? This is his first trial, and, and, and the defendant appeared to Caesar. Now he has to come up with the reason why. Right? Why, why should Rome pay to ship, send this guy to Rome, or whatever. I know he's going to take a ride on a ship. But uh, anyway, why, is it why in the first place? And he better have a good reason. Okay? Um, so Festus is probably going to dig up some records. Uh, from Paul's hearings before Felix. He's going he's gonna to probably get out Claudius. Lysias's transfer letter that we read but uh, since he actually has to write up the report I think it would be advantageous for him to have another hearing right he needs to hear Paul's case again and with some other local officials present and that's when uh, King Agrippa and Bernice come into play they come to pay their respects to the new governor Festus and that opportunity presents itself in verses 13 through 22 uh, where we see Paul's innocence reaffirmed. But verse 13, Now when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, paying their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Uh, there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, 
And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And tomorrow he said, you shall hear him. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll hear Paul defend his life and ministry again, this time before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, um, three uh, leaders. And it's, this is going to be his last and longest discourse. And the passage uh, is basically here to serve as a, uh, it, it just reminds us of a couple of things. It reaffirms, number one, Paul's innocence, which we've seen throughout these chapters. Paul's on trial, he's in jail, but he's innocent. And Paul's case is reaffirmed not to be a civil matter, but again, an internal Jewish dispute. The real debate revolves around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like he said. And that's where Paul gets his confidence. Isn't it amazing? He says, I'm not afraid to die. You know, if, if I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Isn't that amazing? You know how he can say that, why he can say that? Because he knows Jesus lives. He has the hope of the resurrection. For Paul, in his letters, he says, to live is Christ. If I live on, you know what it means? Christ. If I die, what does it mean for me? Christ. It's gain. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, whether I live or die, it's going to glorify God and advance the gospel. It doesn't matter. I mean, his death is going to glorify God. If he lives on, he's going to keep glorifying God in a different way. It's just, to live or die is Christ. It's all, it's gain. And, and uh, this passage here that reaffirms his innocence, it's going to serve a greater purpose too. Uh, as you think about the overall uh, program of God and Christianity, and as we discussed last week, it's this. It's that um, Paul is going to defend Christianity against the charge that it's a threat to the Roman Empire. You have to look beyond Paul. Paul is not just in this selfish, you know, defending himself type of mindset. He is actually defending Christianity, too. And, and, and seeing the credibility built up around Christianity. This is a credible belief system. And so that's why he does what he does. Um, it's a credible movement. And this discussion between Herod Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus um, serves, as the, serves that purpose, showing Paul's not a revolutionary pest, and, and neither are Christians. They're good citizens. In fact, they'll produce the best citizens 
that an empire could ask for. Because we really seek the good of our country, right? Of our nation. Even when we have to act contradictory to what they tell us to do sometimes. You know, either way, we're, we're good eggs. We're seeking good. The good of our country. The good of our fellow man. So it is a defense of, of Christianity. And uh, just a word about Agrippa and, Agrippa and Bernice now. This is Herod Agrippa too, And he is also known as Marcus Julius Agrippa. He's the, he's the last... Uh, ruler in the Herodian dynasty. Right? We've run into a lot of Herods in our journey through Mark and Acts, and this is the last one. Um, Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus, that was this man's grandfather. Uh, he's the man who slaughtered every infant, uh, two and younger. That was two years old and younger, somewhere in there. Um, uh, something that we remember during Christmas, right? Uh, his father was Herod Agrippa I, whom we met uh, earlier in the book of Acts, he's the one who beheaded James. And he's the one who was eaten by worms at Caesarea 15 years ago. And where are they? Caesarea. This is where his dad died for failing to give glory to God. And then his sister, we met his sister last week. It was uh, Felix's third wife, uh, Drusilla. So uh, kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's a pretty tight-knit family, tighter than most, we could say. Actually, it was very immoral and uh, incestuous. But uh, Herod Agrippa ruled a province uh, just northeast of Festus up in the Galilean region, uh, the Sea of Galilee. He lived in Caesarea Philippi. He was given jurisdiction over the temple in Jerusalem and was considered an expert in Jewish religion. And so it was logical for Paul's case to be shared with him. He would prove helpful for Festus in drafting an intelligent report for Caesar. Um, Julia, Julia Bernice was Agrippa II's younger sister by one year. She was one year younger than him, but she was still the oldest sister, older than Drusilla. And uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about her, um, but will suffice it to say that her family and her choices were extremely immoral and more immoral than you can imagine in the world today. I mean, it's not even to that point in our world today. Again, it was just, it was incest. It was, it was pretty ugly. Um, but she, because her and Agrippa are part Jewish, Festus was seeking their expertise to know how to answer Caesar. Um, why his first trial ended with an appeal to Caesar. And um, in summary, I want us just to think a bit about the tensions that are going on in the background at this point in history. The, the political tension that's, that's going on between the Jews and the Romans and it's ready to burst at the seams and, and Christianity is being painted as this sect, you know, this, this sort of this revolutionary sect that's seeking to overtake the world and uh, all these, you know, reasons for uh, just the death penalty, right? I mean... That's basically, if you're a Christian, you were, you're painted as someone who deserves the death penalty. That is going on in the empire at this point. And on top of that, you have all of these incredibly immoral, self-serving rulers who would rather take a bribe like Felix than to actually pursue justice. So even if you are innocent, even if you are right, there's no guarantee that when you go to court, even before... 
a Roman court, there's no guarantee that you're not going to be condemned anyway. And so just put yourself in these shoes in the background. And Paul and the church is caught up in the middle of all of this mess that's going on in this culture. And it's just immoral, it's unjust, and yet the gospel is advancing and the church is growing. It doesn't stop, and none of it intimidates God. None of it stops His plan. God is in the background working providentially through it all, even through the mess that is going on in this culture in the background. And while Paul appears to be a political pawn, nothing could be further from the truth. It looks that way on the surface, but you have to look at it from God's perspective. This is not... Festus's chess game. This is God's chess game. And the divinely guided Paul, in shrewdness and innocence, is defending his apostleship, which was necessary because he only wrote 13 books of the Bible, right? He, we need to know his apostleship is legit. He's defending his apostleship through personal testimony. He's defending Christianity before kings and rulers, and he's proclaiming the gospel to the, those in the, the highest class of society with boldness. So what a passage, right, that this serves. What a purpose that this serves and, and how it should embolden and encourage us today when our own culture is starting to look a lot like this one. And so this, that's our big uh, concept for today is, is how to live as a Christian in a hostile culture. Again, I said there was this uh, proverbial concept that I think we need to get a grasp on if we're going to... Uh, continue to advance the gospel today, and it's this one right here. Be shrewd and innocent. Paul said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. How are sheep supposed to act among wolves? Well, in a sense, you should be like a serpent, and in a sense, you should be like a dove. And whether we want to or not, I think that we are going to learn what it's like to be shrewd and innocent in the days to come, in the years to come. What does it look like? Well, Paul is shrewd. He's wise like a serpent. And you don't normally think of a serpent when you think of, you know, traits to, to model, right? But uh, he's just shrewd in the sense that he's cunningly wise in a good way. You know, the Jewish leaders have to be so frustrated that this slippery Paul keeps getting away from them. Isn't it funny? He just keeps slip, slithering away from there. He just gets out of their grasp. I mean, when he appealed to Caesar, they probably just went, Buh, like, not again. He got away again, you know, because there's really nothing they could do. As a Roman citizen, that he had that right. And uh, his wisdom is also seen in the fact that this isn't just Paul saving himself personally. This isn't Paul using, it's through the book of Acts, Paul has never used his Roman citizenship as his first response to whatever's going on. He never said, I'm a Roman citizen, you have to stop that. It was only when it came to the, you know, that, that breaking point where he had, to, he had to call on his Roman citizenship. It wasn't, his, it wasn't this personal Paul defending himself. It, it was actually Paul optimizing his opportunity as a Roman citizen to advance the gospel. Okay, it's like When the circumstances led to the point where he had to use it, he would, but not just for personal defense, but for the advancement of the gospel. His Roman citizenship and the court system, he would take advantage of them. 
to advance the gospel. See, he, he knows that he's going to stand now before Caesar and thus share the gospel with the most powerful people in the world and defend Christianity in the Roman Supreme Court. That's basically where he's going. The Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. And according to 2 Timothy 4.17, this was what he considered this an opportunity. I keep saying that, but that's Paul's, that's Paul's words. This was his opportunity to basically put a capstone on his ministry of, of preaching the gospel to all of creation that he could. I mean, this was, he considered it making full proclamation. He, he's, he's done a great job in all of his missionary journeys, and now he's going to the Supreme Court. It's, it's pretty neat. And then Paul's dove-like innocence is also seen by the way he refuses to respond to the world like the world. You know what I'm saying? The world is going after him. They're mistreating him. And Paul does not respond to the world like the world. He stays innocent. He lets his life do the talking. His enemies, they have no problem lying. They have no problem with injustice. They have no problem with murder. But Paul doesn't do that. You know, he, he doesn't res- respond to insult with insult. He doesn't insult them back. He, he continues to do what is right and silence the ignorance of these foolish men, as 1 Peter chapter 2 would put it. 1 Peter 2 says, If we suffer for doing what's right and we patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It's Christ-like. And Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I mean, imagine being through all that Paul has been through. I think we read these verses at times and we don't really put ourselves in the situation and we haven't applied it necessarily to our hearts, but it's in our minds, you know. Paul has been in this situation with, just imagine the death threats, the beatings. Can you imagine the death threats? I mean, you wanting to look over your shoulder and have a hard time sleep at night type of thing. You know, he's got the death threats, he's got uh, beatings, Remember, he is loaded with scars. Paul is loaded with scars. He has been in a two-year delay. God made a promise to him, but here he sits two years later. Right? False accusations, exploitation, you being used as a gift, a political pawn, injustice, miscarriage of justice. I mean, that, what Paul is going through is enough to send us into, any of us, into a long and deep period of self-pity. I wonder how we would respond in the situation that Paul's in. I am afraid we would take it so personally that we would end up in a pity of self-depression. But Paul, I think he stays out of that mire, that, that bog of depression and self-pity. And he continues to display Christ-like character because Paul keeps his focus on Christ. And the hope of Christ's eternal reward and on who he was in Christ. Who he was in Christ. That Christ loved him, accepted him, he was secure in Christ, he had significance in Christ. 
His future was secure and that Jesus was all he needed. And the reality was it wasn't about Paul, was it? Paul didn't live as if it was about him. It was about Jesus and it was about the gospel. We have to remember that. And as, as especially as this world becomes more hostile, we're, we're tempted to let the slander and the, and the criticisms coming towards Christians personally. And it's not about us. Remember that. It's not about you. This is about Jesus. This is about the gospel. This is about Christianity. That's how Paul, Paul kept his focus on Christ and who he was in Christ. And as the world becomes more hostile, we're going to have to learn to be shrewder. Actually, I looked that up. That's a word. Did you know that? Shrewder. I typed in more shrewd and it said it was wrong. We need to be more shrewd. It actually said, no, it's shrewder. It's just a word we don't use very often. But we need to be shrewder and innocent. One person put it this way. We need to learn to have an agenda without being forceful. Right? You can't force Christianity down people's throats, but we clearly have an agenda and we're not going to back down. Right? And then he says, we also need to be gentle with our words and actions, but not be pushovers. It's a good way to put shrewd yet innocent. Think about it, guys. Let's put this in today. Like, what's going on right now? How many Christians in recent years have had to appeal to their right of free speech or freedom of religion? How many Christians today? Is this not constant? Christians having to go to court for the, for, for the right to exercise their religion and the freedom of speech. Actually, tomorrow, December 5th, there is a woman named Lori Smith, and she's the owner of 303 Creative, a wedding vendor based in Denver, Colorado, and she's going to stand on trial tomorrow before the Supreme Court for refusing to promote alternative lifestyles in her wedding vendor business because they go against her beliefs. You might want to pray for her. I mean, they say this is the biggest trial since Jack Phillips, this Christian baker from Lakewood, Colorado, who refused to make a same-sex wedding cake. That was 2018. And he won that battle, but it didn't solve the issue. It didn't get to the roots of the issue. And that's what Lori's there for now. But I don't know about you, but this passage makes me thankful for all those organizations out there, like the Alliance for Defending Freedom, all these organizations that day after day and year after year defend the freedom of religion. And I think it's okay. That's good, right? Romans 13 tells us God's sovereign over governments. He designed them to punish evil, to condone what is good. And God appointed courts of law, and he gives us the liberty to use them lawfully when it comes to it. But while, get this, while we might use the courts that he provides, it's not the court system that we trust in, right? It's not the court system that we trust in, and it's not America that our hope is in. Our trust and our hope is in, is in God, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm.